0: This morning's scripture reading is from Ecclesiastes, chapter 1, verses 15 through 18, and chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I've acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly, for what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceived that the same event happens to them all. Then I said in my heart, What happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after the wind. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, location
1: services and GPS have somewhat toned this down, but those of you who remember life with maps, physical maps, will remember that you have to know where you are before you plot where you need to go. Uh, Or to think of it medically, you need a diagnosis, you need to understand the malady, the illness before you have something by way of a prescription, uh, a pathway back towards health. And this is true spiritually as well. Uh, I'm reminded of something said by a a third-century Christian named Origen who lived in Alexandria. He was looking at the book of Ecclesiastes, and he put it in its context. And he, he put it in the context of the entire Christian life, that the book of Proverbs, which comes just before it, is meant to shape us in earthly wisdom, that we might not be stupid or foolish, but that we would be discerning and cunning and understanding and wise, that we would know the craft of earthly living, that we would be good at it. The book of Ecclesiastes, he says, is for someone who has gone through that school, who has learned that kind of maturity and discernment, that they not think too highly of their earthly wisdom, that they have a realistic sense of what it does and doesn't actually deliver. And then third and finally, he suggested the book of the Song of Songs, which follows is meant to be the finale, the culmination of this study, that it leads us to the only thing that ultimately delivers, the only thing that actually satisfies, as it portrays through that image of the man and the woman, the couple, uh, it portrays symbolically the power of being one with God, that only in life with God, only in the eternal and everlasting love of God, do we find happiness, do we find something that's not fleeting, Do we find something that satisfies and that sustains us forevermore? And so the the book of Ecclesiastes is like a kidney punch. If you're someone who has studied, if you're someone who has gotten ahead in life, if you're someone who's growing up mature and making your way, then this book is meant to kind of put you on your heels and to slow you down, that you not get unrealistic and unhealthy expectations. That's why I was really glad. The fourth and fifth graders left. Don't want them hearing this and somehow writing off school, right? You've got to study and grow and learn and then be humbled when you realize that even the things you learn, they don't deliver all things. They don't give you all control and so forth. I'm a little concerned. They're in here next week when I'm talking about the The idea of pleasure and of earthly pleasure and the way in which it's vain. Perhaps that was intentional, that they'll hear that message, but not this one. Uh, As we look at this passage, though, I want to think about those three things. The way in which wisdom is tempting and alluring to us, and the, the way in which it's a good thing. Why it's a good thing that we would pursue earthly wisdom. The way in which wisdom can be a troubling thing the way in which it can so easily lead us further away from God and further away from who we're meant to be. And then finally, the way in which Ecclesiastes, in a small and easily overlooked but really significant way, talks about how earthly wisdom, troubled wisdom, can be transfigured by God's grace, that it can be put to death and made alive, that it can be a beautiful gift that we can receive From God's kindness and His grace. So those are three things tempting wisdom, troubled wisdom, and transfigured wisdom as we look at this passage. And it's worth reflecting as we think about the draw of wisdom, the allure of understanding, to think about who is pinning these very words. The book of Ecclesiastes comes from Solomon, King Solomon. David's son. And he's an exemplar of practical wisdom. This is not the only book that's known to come from uh, the hand of Solomon. The Proverbs are largely of his writing, of his gathering. And we know from his own story that wisdom was something with which he was identified uniquely. We think about the beginnings of his reign. If you read in the book of First Kings in chapter 3, Almost like a genie, God offers him this opportunity to request anything he might want, anything at all. And Solomon in first Kings three nine says this: He says, "Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil for who is able to govern this great people." Now, we can sometimes get this notion that because Israel was god 's people, they were huge. They were the China or the United States of that day and age, and it's worth actually being aware they were were a smallish nation state in that day and age. They weren't a mammoth gargantuan empire. And yet Solomon here observes that they are too big for him. He is the king, and yet even though it's not an Egypt or a Babylon and a Syria, some huge bureaucracy, some massive people, he nonetheless realizes that understanding and discernment to govern even the small nation is too much for him. And so he asks this one thing of God, that God would give him discernment and understanding, that God would give him wisdom, not that he would be famous, not that he would be better than others, but that he could serve well. He calls himself your servant, and he speaks of using the understanding and wisdom that God would provide so that he might judge good and evil for the women and men who come to him seeking justice. And First Kings 3, of course, goes on to describe this remarkable illustration. There are these two women, uh, two prostitutes who are named there. And they come, and they, they have each had a child, and they come because one child is dead and one is alive, and they're disputing whose child is still alive, and they're seeking a judgment from King Solomon. And Solomon is able shrewdly, having received this gift of wisdom from God, to say, we've got to kill the child. We've got to cut it in two, and you can each walk away with half of it, and that's the way that justice will be resolved here. He's wise because he realizes, of course, that the legitimate mother will say, no, by all means, let the child live and go with the other woman rather than kill my own offspring, my own child, and give me but a part of a deceased corpse. And so we see in that chapter that not only is God pleased, but that we read in verse 28, all Israel stood in awe of the king because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice that illustrates the the powerful discernment, the understanding, not just of what's right, but of how to lead people to what's right as a king and an exemplar. And we see that this continues on throughout Solomon's reign. We read, for instance, at, at the end of 1 Kings 4, this, God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure. And breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all other men, wiser than Ethan the Ezraite, and Haman, and Calcol and Darda, uh, the sons of Mahol. And his fame was in surrounding nations. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees from the cedar that's in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and of fish. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who'd heard of his wisdom. It's kind of a strange line. I love the fact that it's calling out the people who are less wise than Solomon, right? Naming these uh, three folks who are uh, in some way more foolish than him. Uh, and that may sound strange, but it's naming folks who were known as great intellects and putting them in their place. I also love the fact that it goes on to describe how he, he speaks of beasts and birds and reptiles and fish. And that may sound a little odd to you and me until we remember that those are things that were viewed as symbolic or representative of the divine in that world so that, for instance, a king would ordinarily be depicted in that fashion. And so by saying that Solomon can speak wisely of these things, it's actually saying not that he's just talking about the animals in the zoo, but that he's discerning and understanding about those things that bear greatest significance, uh, the weightiest, the most divine things in the world. And so of all people, Of all people who might say that wisdom and understanding is limited and vain, it's most notable to come from someone like Solomon, from the preacher, or perhaps better, the the professor, the teacher, who has given us proverbs, who has given us songs, who has been regaled for his wisdom with people coming the world over to seek out his insight, and who here tells us his own journey. We see this, for instance, at the beginning of the passage, just before we uh, had it read in verse 13, he says, I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that's done under heaven. We see uh, in verse 16 and uh, verse 17, he goes on to say, I applied my heart to know wisdom, to know madness, and to know folly, to understand everything under heaven or under the sun. And it's not just Solomon. It's not just this remarkable person back in the day who illustrates the tempting nature of wisdom, the fact that it allures us and draws us. Think about, as Damien mentioned before calling us to worship, the myriad ways that we all seek out and receive information. The delight, the allure that is found there. We read that blog, we listen to that newscast, we study that book, we go to school, we attend a workshop or a seminar, we do continuing ed, we seek out mentors. And if we don't do those things, perhaps we feel guilty about not doing those things. And We realize others are doing them and getting ahead of us, and that too says something about our value system. Perhaps we can measure our Draw to understanding and wisdom by nothing else than after homes, what else do we most go into debt for? You can measure a person's heart by what they will lay out money, by what they will borrow for. As we think about the over trillion dollars worth of student loan debt that sits in this country alone, we can see something about the allure and the draw of understanding and wisdom. The way that it it calls out to us. It promises something. It promises uh, an ability to discern, to get ahead, uh, to be wise, to grow up in so many ways. And Solomon illustrates that, that we're drawn to light. We're drawn to transparency. We struggle with secrets, with not knowing an explanation. That this too illustrates this fact that we yearn so very deeply for wisdom And the Bible commends that. It's not for nothing. Solomon's got lots of problems. His desire for and his exemplification of wisdom is not among them. The Bible commends, as we heard from Psalm 19, the idea that the law of the Lord instructs us, that it equips us for discernment, for good judgment, uh, for better intuition for acting as mature women and men. And so the first thing we've got to see is that there's just this deep and profound desire for understanding and wisdom, and that there's this innate and intuitive longing we have to understand what's going on around us. That's why the passage that we read began with this idea that what's crooked can't be made straight, what's lacking can't be counted. In the midst of the fact that there are things we can't make sense of and we can't fix, Perhaps our most intuitive response is at least to understand what's going on. And the Bible actually commends that. That's part of who we're made to be. That God has blessed us with minds and God has shown himself to be our teacher. And so it's a beautiful thing that wisdom is tempting and alluring, that it draws out our desire to know more and to see further. But there's a second thing we see here as we read on in the passage, and this perhaps is where the kidney punch comes. This is where Ecclesiastes is is most palpably focused, and that's that the tempting, alluring wisdom very quickly becomes troubled wisdom, vain wisdom, and that wisdom's gifts or gains are so fleeting. We have to ask the question, why does wisdom frustrate us so? Why does understanding seem to be so vain? Perhaps we can understand something of this by thinking about an illustration uh, from one of the cities that has most commended or exemplified wisdom in the modern world. Damien mentioned last week as he was introducing the book of Ecclesiastes that we do well to hear it as people this side of what we call modernism or modernity. And that we ought to own up to the fact that there are certain presumptions that we are shaped for in our modern world. Uh, And that reason is one of them. The high value placed on rationality, on science, on understanding things, and thus being able to manipulate and control things, that that is so prized in our day and age. You can see that exemplified if, if you turn your eyes to Paris. Paris is... In many ways, a very old city marked by so many things of classical culture and even the Christian religion, the beautiful cathedral of Notre Dame. Glorious facade, illustrating that transcendence of spires pointing up to the heavens, reminding us that we're meant to find beauty and truth and goodness coming from on high and nowhere else. But it's not for nothing that about 20 years ago, when they were going to mark the 200th anniversary of the French Revolution when in many ways people date modernity to, where the Declaration of the Rights of Man was put down, they were going to create what's known as the Grand Arc. And this 348-foot-tall structure of marble and glass is there in center city Paris. This striking facade, very much in contrast to that of the Cathedral of Notre Dame, and it houses an exhibit for some of the great texts of modernity, illustrations of human reason and how it's going to bring about progress, how it's going to deliver on equality and liberty in our day and age. And it's not for nothing that they designed it specifically so that this arch is big enough so that the cathedral spires of Notre Dame can fit snugly underneath it. It's meant to illustrate this idea that human reason, the kind of control, the kind of uh, Deliverance, the kind of effects that we are promising are meant to outpace that of God, that of religion, that of revelation. That's the kind of uh, image that so well depicts our modern temptation. The arrogance that somehow we are going to go further, we are going to know more, we're going to be able to deliver further than God and then those primitive, unaware folks of antiquity, folks like Solomon. What does Solomon say about wisdom? What does Solomon say about the, the calling of reason and of the intellect? He calls it vanity. We spoke briefly about this last week, this image of vanity, this word hevel. It really means vapor. It means wind or fog. As you think about it, you might think about wind. I, I gather, if the meteorologists are remotely right, that when we walk out of here uh, midday, it's going to be quite windy. And of course, a gust comes and you feel it, and it seems so substantial it can make you, or at times, even your car sway just a bit. But then it's gone, just like that. I think of mornings where there's a sod farm just a few miles past my uh neighborhood and if i'm driving past it for some reason it can be so thick with th- fog in the early morning right around sunset that it's it's hardly possible to see more than uh, a, f- a few dozen feet ahead of the car right and then just an hour later the fog has dissipated entirely what seemed so substantial so overwhelming Proves to be fleeting and temporary. That's what Solomon means when he says that wisdom, our search for understanding, our desire to grow in our reason and our intellect, it is fleeting. It is vain. Well, why? Why does he say here in verses 14 and in verse 17 that it's vanity and it's a striving after wind? It's trying to grab something that doesn't last and isn't really substantial. Why is it that reason and understanding don't prove to make good on what they promise? There's a couple things that he says here. First, he says, wisdom isn't going to change our end. Notice verse 15. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. The wise die with the foolish. It might change the class and the comfort of the ride, the kind of napkin you use, but the plane takes you to the same spot. We all die together. Wisdom will not change the end, though it may change the the level of satisfaction or comfort along the way. Not only that, but he says, secondly, wisdom bears a cost. We may think it simply adds comfort, but it also bears a cost. Verse 18, in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. It's not for nothing that there's a saying ignorance is bliss. Being unaware may limit the amount of things you can do in response to something, but it does enable you, perhaps, to overlook the pain and the sorrow of seeing deeply into the darkness of being aware of the chaos, and of knowing the finite limits that you yourself bear. There's something profound here, and this is something that Christians aren't the only ones to see. You could consider uh, Socrates of old, who would say, yes, that the unexamined life is not worth living, but who would also say that the life of the mind is a call to die. It involves willingly knowing sorrow and pain that you otherwise wouldn't be aware of, right? Um, Think about so many areas where, as you grow in understanding, your ability to grow anxious, your ability to grow pained, or to be overwhelmed expands. Uh, Many of you volunteer in the various classes with city kids. That's wonderful, wouldn't it be so much freer and easier if you weren't aware of things, even in the smallest, most sort of lay sense, like germ theory? If, if you could just interact and volunteer and, and not have to think twice about, you know, the toy that the kid puts in their mouth and then hands to you, uh, it would be so much easier. Ignorance would be delightful bliss, right? That's perhaps a little superficial, Imagine considering a little more deeply the the family history that has marked and in many ways shapes the kind of pains and difficulties that you experience and how they're not just ephemeral or superficial but they run deep in terms of character and personality and family systems that can bring deep sorrow. Not just that there are superficial hurts that others inflict on you, but that they run so deep that they are sometimes seemingly overwhelming, the kind of things that you can't just fix in a week's time. Increasing knowledge increases sorrow. As we study the way in which human society works out, the way in which different peoples interact, it brings deep sorrow to see the systemic sorts of ways in which we are selfish, the ways in which we harm others for the benefit of ourselves. As we think about our bodies, the way in which we're not just frail, but we're breaking down. We're experiencing that kind of entropy within, uh, that we are dying. And as we grow in our understanding of that, I mean, what person got off-web MD and felt lighter about themselves? Right? Increasing knowledge, whether real or sort of, Ephemeral increases sorrow. And so there is a cost to growing in wisdom. It it causes us to bear something, and it can so easily lead us to that kind of arrogance that we can control, we can manipulate things. Perhaps this is nowhere caught more powerfully than in absurdist literature or sci-fi uh, kind of movies of late. Isn't it interesting, that about the only movie apparently that gets made these days is the superhero movie. I'm not exactly a connoisseur of it, but I'm struck by the reality that seemingly the story demands that the problems of the day can't be solved by an ordinary person. You can't fix it. The problems are more than simply mundane, they're deeper, and they demand someone who is funky or odd or different or transcendent. Something like that has to intervene if life is going to be provided, if death is going to be staved off. Doesn't that say something profound about our understanding about how we can't just manipulate our circumstances? We can't just control our existence, much as we might believe it. Wisdom is troubled, because at the end of the day, it doesn't remove our deepest opponent, death. Even Solomon, even Professor King Solomon knew that. But there is a third thing. It's not in our passage, but we read it last week, and I want to read it to you from the end of the book of Ecclesiastes. There's hope. There's hope for wisdom. The book ends this way. The end, or you might say the goal of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Wisdom under the sun. Wisdom apart from God. Wisdom, we might say, in the secular. Wisdom that is bereft of any reference to God's action from on high. It is vanity. And yet, there is a way forward. The end of the matter isn't in that darkness. The goal of the book isn't that you walk away merely with a kidney punch. But that you know that wisdom can be transfigured. That the gospel has a good word here too. That our arrogant pursuit of understanding, it can be killed. It can be put to death so that it doesn't become a means of control. It doesn't become a way to play God like the temptation that Adam and Eve fell into in Genesis 3 when that kind of knowledge represented in the knowledge of good and evil there. That that was described as being like unto God by the serpent, the tempter, and they ate. And so often we, like them, pursue wisdom that we might be like God, that we might be in control. The book gives us a different way that not only kills that, but raises a new, a new calling for understanding, a new calling for growing in discernment, in wisdom, for growing up in Christ, that we would fear God, that we would fear God with our minds, I want to explore that idea of fearing God. It appears not just here, but throughout the wisdom literature in the Psalms and across the Bible. We read, for instance, at the beginning of Proverbs 1, verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Or we read in Proverbs 9, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We see it in the Psalms, in Psalm 111. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have good understanding. Or in the next Psalm, it begins, Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. And this isn't just an Old Testament thing. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, who were messed up in all sorts of ways, tells them in chapter 7, That the goal he has for them is bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Because the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever, as we already heard from Psalm 19, verse 9. This is an everlasting design plan by God. That we would flourish by fearing God. That we would flourish, that we would find happiness by fearing God. Well, What does that mean? And what does that do? Those are the two questions by way of conclusion I want to end with. What does it mean to fear God? Or perhaps better put, how do you fear God with your mind? I think if, if we're to be honest, the two most significant words have to be being alert and being awestruck. Alertness and awe are the two fundamental aspects of fearing God. And this is where our context is so scary because we are not living in a day and an age that in any way incentivizes being alert to God or being awestruck by God. In most situations, God is an afterthought. I was struck by the words of a a British commentator, William George Peck, observing the culture in Britain a few decades ago, and he said this, He said, if I'm the sort of being that the men who design advertisements in the subway think I am, then I'm not the sort of being the gospel thinks I am. I mean, how much more would we say that's the case today, where you're reduced to your body, you're reduced to your bank account, you're reduced to the group of people who do or don't hang out with you on weekends. We are reduced to material beings. We live in a a day and an age that celebrates that and commends that and inundates us with that. And God is at best an afterthought. At worst, though, when God is commended by our culture, he's commended in so many ways for delivering those things. Think of the remarkable allure of the prosperity gospel. God is good because our culture values money and God will get you money. God is good because our culture values health and fitness and strength and vitality. And God will bring you that. God becomes Santa Claus. God becomes instrumental. God becomes someone who gets you something that's more substantial than God. At best, he's a really good servant. How do we fear God? Against those things, we grow in being alert to and awestruck, not by what God can get us that we already wanted, not ways in which God provides what our culture already celebrates, but that we are alert to and awestruck by who God is, by God's presence in our midst, by the fact that he is more present than we are alert to and that he's more good than we have a heart to take in. This is how Eric Mascal can speak of what he calls the transfiguration of the secular, of the earthly, that we can start to see God present and good and generous in every situation. As John Calvin would put it, that Holy Scripture, the law of the Lord, of which we were called to worship with this morning, that that law of the Lord, Holy Scripture, serves like a set of lenses through which you view all things. That it alerts us to the palpable presence of God in the everyday. The sacrament that we'll partake of will remind us of that as well. That God's grace is more present, even through very frugal, very simple, very ordinary means. That we are to be alert to that and awestruck by that. And what comes from this? What, What are the gifts of fearing God? Two things. And I mention these both to those of you who are Christians and to those of you who are here and who are perhaps unsure of this whole Christian thing. Two different things that fearing God with our minds instills in us. Fearing God humbles our understanding because we know that we can't control things on our own and we're dependent on another. We're alert to our need and we're awestruck by his generosity in providing for us. And so it, it really instills a sense of intellectual humility and awareness that we can't control. We, we don't have a God's eye view That we are feeble and finite and frail and we do fall and stumble. And we need correction. But secondly, fearing God with our minds also gives us hope for knowing. Because we know it doesn't hang on us alone. We know that our understanding, our insight isn't dependent ultimately on our aptitude or our education. We know that there is a God who is above us. We know there is a realm above the sun. And we do know that we can have hope that he will speak. That we can have confidence that he has come near. That we can have boldness because he has come and dwells within us. We live in a day and an age that careens between arrogance and despair. And it's easy to speak of culture being that way. I bear an existence, and my hunch is a few of you do too, where we careen between the temptation of being intellectually arrogant and being intellectually despairing. Thinking, if they just did it the way I wanted, if they just saw what I see, if they just put together the way I do, it would all be right. That kind of absurdist arrogance and sense of control. And then on the other hand, sometimes in the same day, meeting, or night, I don't understand anything. I'm completely overwhelmed. There is no logic or order to the situation. There, there is no path forward. Utter nihilism, despair, and overwhelmedness. And the gospel answers both of these. And so those of us who are Christians, as we find ourselves being drawn in to that kind of pride or into that kind of despair, the fear of a God who's always there, who's always more beautiful, and who is worthy of being feared, of being one who draws us not just to be aware of him, but awestruck by him, that humbles us, that gives us confidence. And those of you who are wondering about this Christian thing, that yearning you have as you encounter talking heads, perhaps as you even see religious people who seem so prideful like they've got it all together, It's worth knowing that that's not the way of Jesus, and that's not the way humans are meant to live, and that the grace of the gospel actually provides a humble, a finite, a a human way of living that is dependent in faith on God, that fears God, that takes Him seriously and ourselves a bit more lightly, but that it's also a way that gives us a gift of hope. We ought not be stupid enough to be optimistic about our own sense of understanding and control, but we sure aren't going to get anywhere being mere pessimists. And the gospel gives us something that is neither optimism nor pessimism. It gives you the gift of hope. That in the midst of what seems to be chaotic darkness, God provides light and insight and illumination. And that's why he's worthy of being feared. And that's why the gospel can transfigure even our broken understanding. Let's pray and ask that God would make that very real and beautiful to each of us. Lord, we thank you for your word. It teaches us. It reminds us of the limits of even what we have learned. And we pray that in both respects we would be led to lean more deeply, more prayerfully, more faithfully upon you. And we thank you that Jesus is not only a Savior who died as a sacrifice for our sins, but a Savior who is our teacher through his holy word, even this morning. Would you make that real to us that we can celebrate that he is our shepherd, that he grows us up into the fear of you that is the end of the matter and the beginning of all wisdom. For it's in his strong name we do pray. Amen.